Joining us in this segment is our old uh, friend, Steve Alexander, to maybe extend our discussion in the last segment about influence and ethics um, uh, with our, our legal scholar, who himself knows a few things about influence and ethics. Steve, welcome back. Hey, happy to be here, Doctor. What's on your mind? Uh, well, I wanted to talk about some Supreme Court decisions, and I, we, to do this justice, you're going to have to come back some point in the future. Well, we're going to devote a whole show, I think, to some of these things. But the one that stuck out in my mind I wanted to ask you about is this matter of eminent domain. We should maybe explain uh, what it's about and what this decision means. Well, uh, there, is, there has been an apparent extension of what, what uh, at least in my, in my world, uh, have always known as what eminent domain powers the government has. But basically, we all understand that if a government uh, body needs to acquire property that's held privately for the overall betterment of uh, its constituents, such as taking uh, a corner to widen the street so it's safer for the local school, or taking some property to add a freeway interchange, etc. I can say we know that the government yeah. has the power to take that property, but they need to pay the private owner the fair market value. That's known as the power of eminent domain. It's often the value of the property is what is often litigated in court right. to determine what what fair value is. Long established, pre- long established in American law that this is something that, that is done. If it's necessary to be done, the government is allowed to go in and take private property with adequate compensation. Exactly. And uh, just the other day, you had mentioned uh, really a, a really great example is when they uh, widened and extended and broadened uh, the Interstate 80 uh, corridor through Sacramento, uh, originally taking you know, a certain number of properties to change the route to widen the route, and then, of course, a lot of the, I'm sure there was a lot of, uh, involved a lot of the acquisition of private property, widening and building such a beautiful freeway all the way on up to Lake Tahoe. Yeah. So that would be a classic or traditional exercise of the power of eminent domain. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I haven't read the decision, and it wouldn't probably help me if, if I did, and that's, that's, that's where you come in, but this latest decision seems to extend the power of eminent domain to governments. So that they can judge, for example, that they might take Farmer Jones's land and turn it over to Walmart, which, which is my understanding, has been done on numerous occasions in the Midwest. Well, uh, you can look at the opinion in, in probably two uh, di- diametrically opposed ways. Those that look to the reason we have imminent, imminent domain would say that it's consistent, that it isn't who the government gives the property to, it's whether the government is taking the property from the private landowner paying them fair value all for the public good. Those that feel that it is an extension would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's one thing for the government to acquire the property and develop it into a freeway interchange, into a widened street, etc. It's yet another uh, uh, situation where you're actually acquiring that property, forcing the landowner to sell it, and then giving it over, selling it over to another private citizen to actually develop the property and thereby arguably do the government's work. So the way it's come up is, is if you have a uh, depressed area, through the power of economically depressed, possibly attracting drug addicts and prostitutes or whatever the case might be, the government uses its power of eminent domain to remove that property from the private landowner and then have another private citizen, such as a corporation like Walmart, do their bidding to put in a new shopping mall and thereby bring up the economic you know, health of that property and, and thereby serve, arguably serve the community by, by eliminating an area that's blighted. Uh, 
And you know, it raises a big it raises a big issue. Well, I think it's raised the eyebrows of people that uh, experts and lawyers that have dealt in these areas for years as to well. Work. That's that's my understanding is that it is this is this has raised eyebrows all across the country. The problem is, is that it seems that it's the law of the land. Uh, time will tell to what extent courts will apply this ruling. Um, you know, to what extent. You know, and, and we'll get into the Ten Commandments cases later, but it could be that what appears to be a broad rule at this point is narrowly applied, so yeah. that the context of each action taken by the government has to be looked at, you know, in its totality. Well, know, what are the financial arrangements, and uh, how did they acquire this property, et cetera? On this program, we haven't been shy about uh, about uh, about pillaring the the Supreme the Supreme Court majority that's often conservative. But in this case, I'm siding with Rehnquist, Scalia, Thomas, and O'Connor, thinking that this was the wrong way to go. Well, right. you know what, Doctor? Uh, your ability to switch sides in an instant, you, you might consider law school. Because uh, <laughs> the mark of a good lawyer is uh, one that can pick up the torch for really any aggrieved person or interest uh -huh. and make the best argument. So uh -huh. I admire your flexibility and resourcefulness in your thinking. Well, I couldn't have gone to law school. There's, there's no pictures in the books. <laughs> well, Steve, thanks. We'd be happy to have you. We no, we need to we need to come back to these topics. Talk about the Ten Commandments. There's a lot we need to talk about, but we just don't have time today. So come back, come back in a few weeks, would you? We will. I think it would only be appropriate, though, as a teaser for our next show, if we just digress here for a moment and maybe have a closing prayer. <laughs> <laughs> now we'll defer the prayer for today. But uh, hey, thanks for having me on and. Uh, Keep up the good work. All right, Steve. See if you can get some experts to come with us. We'll talk about this eminent domain thing both sides. Will do, Doctor. Thanks. Got them in the stable. All righty. Bye-bye. That was Steve Alexander, Radio Parallax's official legal correspondent. All right, speaking of future shows, we're going to hopefully talk with Dr. Colm Kelleher as a follow-up to our special program we did on mad cow disease. It seems quite clear now that there's been a second confirmed case here in the United States, and Dr. Kelleher is going to have a few things to say about that, hopefully on next week's program. In the weeks to come after that, we're also going to hopefully speak with someone about the terrible situation in, uh, in Zimbabwe when uh, Marxist President Robert Mugabe... Is apparently um, showing his true colors with his ham-fisted dictatorial style of management, uh, common to Marxist rulers everywhere, it would seem. Um, but uh, we're going to put that off, of course. You know, we're, we're out of time today, but we have to, at some point, talk about Zimbabwe at some length, and I, I, I've been promising that. We're going to get to that at some point. Miscellaneous item from the Sunday Papers, an uh, article by Gordon Livingston, a psychiatrist from Columbia, Maryland, noted that uh, that boy, that 11-year-old boy, Brennan Hawkins, who was lost in the woods for four days in Utah last week, provided some insight into some potential disadvantages of having uh, you know, Americans' behavior controlled by one's worst fears. This boy, apparently, according to his family, said he was... Um, he was following the rules he was taught when he got lost, which were to stick to the trail and not talk to strangers. The boy said he heard rescuers before he was discovered, but hid, going into what his family called midget mode by pulling his T-shirt over his knees. He told his family he had feared being abducted.
The primary reason he wasn't found earlier is that he was hiding from searchers. While it is true that, you know, of the 50 million school-aged children in this country, about 100 a year are abducted by strangers, but at the same time, 3,400 a year are killed in motor vehicle accidents, and 3,000 die, that's one every four hours, by firearms. Yet parents are routinely advised to photograph and fingerprint their children. The doctor, Livingston, noted that the Washington County school system in Maryland last month sent home DNA testing kits in the backpacks of kindergarten students so their bodies could be identified if they were kidnapped and murdered. The doctor asks, does anyone think this sort of anxiety is not transmitted to the children involved? Will anyone in Utah point out that Brennan Hawkins might have died in the wilderness because he was afraid of the people searching for him? This does require a little reevaluation. All right, three quick media items and we're out. Uh, Steven Spielberg said the days are over when movie audiences empathize with a lovable alien. It seems like the time was right for me as a filmmaker to let the audience experience an alien a little less pleasant than E.T. <laughs> like, one of the only pleasant aliens I can think of is E.T. I don't think Spielberg's exactly breaking new ground with the concept of, you know, hostile extraterrestrials. God, that, that man has so ruined Hollywood. But at the bottom of the article about this, it noted that star Tom Cruise, who we were talking about earlier, said, War of the Worlds is more about family values than interplanetary disturbances. Quote, The idea was always about family, he said. What would you do for your family? Can you protect your family? Yes, folks. <laughs> An invasion from Mars. Family values all the way. All right, two wonderful emails from our media correspondent, Gary Chu. <laughs> Gary sent the following article from the AP Wires. Religious leaders agree on role of Mary. A group of Roman Catholic and Anglican leaders studying the role of Mary, the mother of Jesus, said that after years of talks, they have agreed that Catholic teachings on the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Mary into Heaven are consistent with Anglican interpretations of the Bible, which Gary merely attached, boy, that takes a load off my mind. And our closing item for the day from Gary Chu is uh, the following story. Before his 2001 inauguration, George Bush was invited to a Get Acquainted tour of the White House. After drinking several glasses of iced tea, he asked his host, lame duck Bill Clinton, if he could use his bathroom. As he entered Clinton's personal bathroom, he was astonished to see the president had a solid gold urinal. That afternoon, George told his wife, Laura, about the urinal. Just think, he said, when I'm president, I could have a gold urinal too. But I just wouldn't do something that self-indulgent. Later, when Laura had lunch with Hillary during her tour of the White House, she told the First Lady how impressed George had been with his discovery of the fact that Mr. Clinton had a gold urinal. That evening, when Bill and Hillary were getting ready for bed, Hillary smiled and said to Bill, Honey, I found out who peed in your saxophone. We are out of time. Our thanks to Dr. Robert Cialdini, our special Legal correspondent Steve Alexander and, of course, Gary Chu for those great emails. 
We'll see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This show was produced by Edward McMillan. And now, stay tuned for Todd.